Hi, Tomato here. I am editing this episode in January 2023, but I'm pretty sure we recorded it in the summer of 2021. So first of all, whoops, our hiatus was slightly longer than we planned. Sorry about that. And also that whatever jokes and opinions and statements we made were very topical at the time, but might feel a little less relevant now. That said, just, you know, go back in your mind to 2021. Load these many summers ago as you listen, and I'm sure that you'll find whatever we say to be absolutely hilarious, obviously. Uh, see you at the other side, and I guess enjoy 2021, if enjoy is the word. I mean, if you're listening to us, you'll definitely enjoy it. So yeah, enjoy. Welcome back to Check This Pleased, a podcast where we have read half of the webcomic Check Please, and now we're going to read part two, starting with comic one of year three, WAG, which was originally posted on April 11th, 2016. I'm Secrets, and today I am joined by somebody who knows how to use Zoom, comma, Tomato, a Zoom genius, in fact. All right. Well, this comic's pretty wild. So let's just let's just do it. Let's just blog it. I guess this is podcasting. Okay, whatever. Biddy's fun summer boyfriend vague vlogging is interrupted when Jack calls to say he remembered where shitty put the key to the basement. It's taped to the bottom of the couch. Hanging up, a new teammate of Jack's, unnamed for now, catches him on the phone and presumes Jack is chatting with his girlfriend, a misunderstanding about which Jack seemingly has some kind of emotion. One important thing that we'll get a little into is that during this conversation, Biddy kisses a little figurine of Jack right on the head. So, you know, put a pin in that for later. It's one of my favorite parts of the whole thing. Well, I obviously didn't think that was important enough to include in the summary. <laughs> Foolish, honestly. Okay, let's get into it. What is a WAG? WAG stands for Wives and Girlfriends. And it's a very common term for like celebrities romantic partners, usually opposite sex romantic partners, pretty much always, I guess. But it's a term that comes very specifically out of British celebrity culture and specifically, specifically British football culture. And by football, I mean soccer. I had the misunderstanding, I guess, because my perspective is largely bound by American use of the term, that this was sometimes used to talk about like the royal family, but apparently it's pretty rare. Or maybe Americans do it because they borrowed the term, but it's like not typical in British publications to do that. It's really not typical to call partners of the royals wags. It's really pretty isolated in the British press to women who are dating soccer stars. So there are some instances of, for example, Kate Middleton being referred to as the queen of the wags. I found a particular, after you made this observation, I found a particular 2013 reference to a book that was critiquing her life choices specifically. But I think the meaning of that gesture as an isolated incident is that she is being criticized by the borrowing of this term from a very different arena. 
So it's like a very particular and specific transgression in borrowing something from banal mainstream new money culture to apply it to somebody who's a member of royalty, which is obviously a very old institution that whatever you want to say about it is inarguably at the top of the social hierarchy within the British class system. It's not a term that would commonly be in the tabloids when talking about, say, Kate Middleton or Meghan Markle, who are the two most prominent wives of male members of the British royal family at this point. It's mostly just for the wives of soccer stars, which is, of course, why it's kind of a funny tongue-in-cheek thing to apply to Biddy in this comic, because, of course, he is dating an athlete. Although I don't think it's a term that's as common in American parlance necessarily. The romantic partners of hockey players, as I think we've discussed on this podcast, are not really objects of mainstream interest, certainly not like tabloid level. Right. I think they're of interest to people who care about the personal lives of the hockey players or whatever other sport. So people who are in non-transformative or maybe transformative fandom. But it seems like in British circumstances, even if you're not someone who cares about football, you would still know about these people. So I think the like ultimate wag and maybe the thing that'll maybe help us think around the situation is a woman named Colleen Rooney, who is married to English football star Wayne Rooney. They got married in 2008 and it was like a very big splashy spread on the cover of OK and like several pages inside of their very lavish Spanish cathedral wedding or something like that. And they were dating for several years, I think like six years before they actually got married. I think they started dating as like teenagers and their entire relationship, which at this point has spanned most of their lives, is just nothing but drama, tabloid level drama of cheating accusations and prostitutes and all sorts of other things. Mostly it's his drama, but of course the only reason why she is in the UK tabloids at all is because she's married to this soccer star and he's the captain of the English national team. I think he's retired now and he's a manager, so he's the equivalent of a a head coach. I guess it would be untrue to say that it would be irrelevant to talk about her in conversation with his trauma, but in case you don't know this already, it's worth stating that British tabloids and British celebrity culture is wild in a way that American celebrity culture really is not. The way that their legal system works and the way that their libel laws works means that they have basically an entirely unchecked ecosystem of tabloid entertainment, infotainment journalism surrounding the lives of people who in this country would be delist influencers at best. The kinds of people who before the internet would never rise to the service of an Us Weekly style publication. People whose footprint is very, very small. And now it would be untrue to say that Colleen Rooney does nothing. She has, in addition to being a wife and mother, I think they have four kids. She's written columns for the UK tabloids. And I think she like put out a workout video. And these are the sorts of things that wags commonly do. They create their own brand and they 
extend their own brands, essentially in partnership with tabloids. But I think it would also be untrue to say that she has a career. Her career is basically being a wag. That's what wags do. I would say if you want to think a little bit about how this sort of person gets trapped in like the media ecosystem, the scandal of Wagatha Christie is worth following. Within the past couple of years, Colleen Rooney realized that somebody was sharing personal information about her with UK tabloids, but she realized that it was only information that she had been sharing on her Instagram stories. So she basically set up Instagram stories reporting fake life developments. And then over the course of tracking who had viewed these stories was able to find out that it was another wag who had access to her Instagram stories, who was selling this information to UK tabloids. Because of this sort of genius detective work, Colleen Rooney and, and this conflict she'd had with another wag as sometimes called Wagatha Christie, which is very typical of, of clever British puns. It's just like a really, really British thing. And like, obviously it's been tossed around in US media, but British celebrity culture is not the same thing as US celebrity culture. I would say probably like the Ur case, the primordial example of WAGs would be Victoria Beckham, who as Victoria Adams originally was Posh Spice in the Spice Girls. And she had her own high profile identity in the American media because she had her own career even before she started dating David Beckham. She then went on to have her own clothing line, which is considered relatively high high quality, like high style within the fashion industry, even in the US. And of course, David Beckham himself is enough of a cultural icon that he's kind of known like even outside of soccer fandom. And of course, at some point he ended up playing for, I think the LA, is it the LA Galaxy? Whoever their soccer team was at some point. Yeah, Tomato was shrugging because we don't really know that much about soccer on, on this hockey podcast. But uh, long story short, Posh and Bex and Posh as a wag specifically are not typical in their level of fame and cultural cachet. So just the fact that she is posh, high class, and moneyed sets her apart from most wags who are more often usually characterized as wannabe new money types who are a little bit trashy. So the fact that she like got into high fashion and that was her identity from the first moment she soloed on wannabe for 12 seconds is kind of antithetical to the idea of wags who are more likely to be upper middle class types living a attainable but very garish level of privilege. So that's what Biddy is being compared to here. And the joke is that it really doesn't fit. Also, he's a man. Sure, it really doesn't fit at all with any of the things that he wants or dreams of very incongruous. Yeah. Well, Biddy seems not to want this level of attention or not this attention with this origin. Agree that in fact, Biddy does not want to be written about in British tabloids. <laughs> like, no, but he does seem to want a certain kind of attention and he does seem to be willing to use this relationship, not in a mercenary way, he does seem to be willing and like desirous of using his particular station in life as someone who has this kind of security and this kind of relationship to like launch his cookbook career, you know? 
Yeah, but I would say just the fact that he has a YouTube channel and he's doing his own thing and developing his own like brand identity kind of sets him apart from the usual type of person a wag is. Maybe they have jobs. I don't know. I'm sure some of them do, but mostly they're just like dating soccer stars and they pump out children and you see spreads of them in like Hello and OK Magazine. So Biddy isn't quite at that level of wanting to use a relationship for attention. And and certainly it does seem like they don't want, at least at this point, they don't want the relationship to have any particular attention since Biddy very cleverly talks about Jack and then immediately starts talking about his summer boyfriend and like doesn't draw a connection between the two, even though he also talks about Jack visiting his parents, which I remember at the time being like, hmm, somebody would have connected those dots. But apparently most people did not. Well, I think we can agree that at the very least, the people who populate the fictional world of check plays are stupid. Oh, yes. That feels correct. I guess you kind of raised the point in thinking about it like that, that the next several strips are going to deal effectively with how secret or not secret this relationship really is. And it's interesting maybe to look at the text and ask how much Biddy actually wants to keep it secret versus how much does he want to actually talk about it while maintaining only the thinnest veil of plausible deniability. I mean, I think it probably goes back and forth. I would say in this particular strip, he's certainly not saying anything that directly connects Jack to this boyfriend, right? But to talk about the summer boyfriend and then also to talk about how Jack came to visit his parents, that's a boyfriend move. And mentioning that his parents met his boyfriend without knowing it his boyfriend. It's just one of those things where there's too much information that is too close to being solvable for it to be very, you know, hidden at this point. Why did Shitty hide the key to the basement? I don't know. Because <laughs> he's troubling i don't know really it's because he knows that he will miss the house and he wants to be ever needed and so he hid the key so that they would be forced to reach out to him and he could come in from boston riding his white horse of a whatever fucking car he has and launch into hero mode but unfortunately jack just remembered so he can't do that just more fun hijinks happening at the hockey house year three more of same well that's interesting isn't it because i will say that the first half of year three made me crazy and actually we were becoming friends at this time because you had written a fic i reached out to you being like your fic's really good and then we became friends and especially towards the latter part of year three we were like screaming at each other via tumble messenger like oh my god this is making me feel nuts and there is something I can already feel it in this particular strip like there is something here that's very different from the previous year's strips where this strip when it appeared on my computer screen for the first time I just like became obsessed in a way that previously I'd been like oh this is fun okay I'll read some fic but with this particular strip I was like oh my god this is going somewhere so there is something new this is really the only time in the comic when it seems like there's actually like stakes. The idea of what's going to happen to the relationship between these characters in the high pressure situation of having to hide the relationship 
when all of their social circle is common and also one of them is a famous celebrity athlete is kind of the only time when there's, I don't know, any sort of question about what's actually going to happen. It feels, or at least it felt to me reading this comic in spring going into the fall of 2016, that it was possible that things were not going to work out so great for Jack and Biddy. And more to the point, even if they did work out, it was going to be pretty messy and we were going to get some kind of story. And I'd say the other really important factor in this is that between the end of year two and the start of year three, Check Please exploded in popularity and it brought a rush of new people into this fandom, including me. This is where I started reading and the collective experience of everybody processing these strips together and trying to, you know, read the tea leaves and figure out what's going to happen and what's motivating the characters and when are we going to find out all of the information that's going to really put into context what we're seeing in the comic was just crazy making in the fun kind of way of fandom at its best. So that's what's going on here. And I think it's also important noting, we talked about this a little bit when we were discussing like the end of year two, through at least the most of year three, I think, the way that Ngozi is producing these comics is she's having basically several months of downtime followed by a week or maybe a week and a half punctuated by like a lot of comics that kind of come together in a series. Usually they're little arcs and she called them bitty bombs. So this comic and the next three or four comics, depending on, I don't know how you count hockey shit with Ransom and Holster, which unfortunately we're going to have to read, all came at this fast clip that really, I think, generated a lot of fandom energy because all of a sudden it's like, oh, another comic is coming in two days. We have nothing to do but sit here and collectively chew on what's going to happen when that next strip posts in two days. Where is this going? But the stakes are very carefully laid out in this first installment. And yeah, I was going nuts. I was going fucking crazy. just like emotions overload every single time one of these strips posted until things kind of deflated. And I would say that for me, that happened around the end of this first semester of year three. And the grind that was the last year and a half of check please turned into four years of what the hell. Four very long years full of so many internet fights. Oh God, but that's story for another day we'll tell them we'll tell them all the stories i will also say that not only are the stakes carefully planted in a real way that really feels like potentially there could be consequences unlike the first two years we've switched genres we are no longer in getting together rom-com all of a sudden we're in contemporary queer lit or something like i don't know exactly what genre this half of year three is in it's not in quite the same genre as years one and two and it's not in the same genre at like slice of life genre that you could say like the second half of year three and four are in it's its own very exciting genuinely uncertain thing because even though you know that because of the tensions being set up eventually jack and biddy will come out you do not know how 
And all of the excitement that had been transferred from how are Jack and Biddy going to get together, which turns out to be like way less complicated than anyone expected, got transferred into, okay, but how are they going to come out? And I think that that tension is like very much underplayed by a lot of fandom. And I'm sure we'll talk about it as we go. But that was, for me, a huge part of the fandom and also a huge part of like the excitement around this time in the comic. I was relatively certain Jack was going to end up being outed because the tension that's being set up here is about the sort of high stakes context of being an athlete with this major secret. And it kind of feels like that's the story to tell about this. I also thought because we had Kent Parson, another prominent gay or queer hockey player who we see in this tension with the Falks, I assumed that there would be something that would tie those threads together because those were the two highest stakes threads we'd been introduced to so far. And I really think that given Ngozi's narrative history, writing about Hardy and how smart she had been laying the path for Kent Parson, I don't know for sure if outing was going to be the story, but I feel pretty sure that the coming out, however it happened, and Kent Parson and the NHL all felt like they would be tied together. And it was Well, we'll see how that goes, won't we? So I should say, not outed maliciously by some villain character, but rather all of this hidden backstory of Jack's because he is under scrutiny, becoming publicly evident effectively is what I mean when I say outed. Let's say Kent Parson were to come out or something like that. Inevitably, in the real world, in terms of how gossip works, if there are rumors about Ken Parsons' rumors about Jack Zimmerman, then it just seems as though it would have become a matter of public scrutiny and that outing would have happened not because somebody is like, I know your secret, blah, 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 but like more so just because this is what's in his past. And if the comic is about uncovering what's in his past, surely these things are going to come to light. Put a pin in that and then leave it pinned on the wall because we're not unpinning it in this comic. I... Fully agreed with that. And in fact, I made a fan comic about this very topic because I uh, really, 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 really was sad when it turned out that this was not where the comic was going. And in fact, all those careful threads, nah, pull them all up and stick them on the wall with pins or whatever else you want to because they are there for no reason. But anyway, that's a, that's a future episode. In this episode, oh, the tension's delicious. Well, the tension here is like, I thought setting up these issues that we're discussing. So the bullet point that we've got on the outline is Jack's inscrutable emotions. And I think actually more so than a lot of Ngozi's meaningful character expressions, perhaps Jack in the final panel of this comic is a bit more scrutable. Than, than many reaction shots we get. But I think the network of reasons for the emotions that he's showing are themselves inscrutable and maybe pretty confused and perhaps don't bear out. So let's talk about that a little bit. I loved this ending, especially given the sort of one-two punch of the end of the last comic where Biddy sits down in his chair and then he sees the, the phone buzz and we get this little private frisson between them. 
I loved again that he and Vidya are on the phone. There's a little private prison between them and that I don't even know if I'm saying that word correctly. And that relationship between them is being totally misunderstood. And for me, this was like deeply heart-wrenching when I first read it. And it still is heart-wrenching to me when I read it now. I thought the comic was going to really get into like what it means to be gay, what it means to be closeted, what it means to be forced to consider your identity in like really significant ways. Spoilers, no. But I thought that it was really going to get into that. And so I really loved this interaction between Tater and Jack because Tater is not meaning to be an asshole. He's actually meant to be friendly, right? This is him being like a big goofy friend. He's not an antagonist at all, but he's hurting Jack through this assumption that he's making that, well, of course, Jack's talking to his girlfriend. And this kind of misunderstanding, this very difficult to navigate and resolve emotionally tension feels really sophisticated to me, much more sophisticated than most of Ngozi's writing up until this point, which, you know, college hijinks are fun. All of a sudden you feel the social commentary happening here. You feel the differing motivations of both of the characters and it's all done really subtly. Just thought the art of the strip was very beautiful. And this moment between Tater and Jack, the only other moment I think we've seen with so much unsaid that the reader could nonetheless feel is between Kent and Jack. And both of these conversations are about hurt, both of them are about being gay in different ways. And there's something really wonderful about the fact that Tater thinks he and Jack are on the same page, but they're not. And Jack and the reader know it, but Tater doesn't. So maybe we should say who Tater is or oh, what yeah. Tater is or not too much about him because we'll properly meet him in a couple of strips, but he is this English language, not speaking too good character who is wandering into the frame, sees Jack talking on the phone and says something about how like, oh, you're on the phone with your girlfriend because you look happy. And he interrupts this private moment of Jack and then he walks away with disproportionate elastic gummy arms. And that's all we get of him here. But yes, he is a character named Alexei Mashkov, whose hockey nickname is tater and spoiler alert for the strip where he's introduced more thoroughly i hate this character he is very clearly to my mind modeled after fandom interpretations of yevgeny malkin down to the name mashkov which is very clearly like similar to malkin i think that's just you know further in my like ngozi hockey rpf conspiracy theory land but he definitely is not just that fan interpretation of that guy. He definitely is representing this particular kind of Russian type of player, which we can talk about when we meet him a little better. I don't hate him, but what do I know about him? Well, his name's Tater. Like, you know, okay, that's about all I got. Oh, I do love that he's hitting Jack on the shoulder here in a way that I like imagine is this very solid funk while Jack is like, oh, okay. I like that about him he's a potato themed character which i guess is what you'd expect from russian stereotypes and indeed yeah he he is i think explicitly based on gino to a certain extent but he's also as you as you mentioned just kind of like a a general type hockey the actual sport is very big in um, Northern and Eastern Europe, some parts of Scandinavia, Finland, Russia, and then, I don't know, other Eastern European countries. It was a major pastime of the Soviet period. 
And for its popularity in that part of the world, it is widely common to see in depictions of hockey media and especially hockey RPF, this Eastern European or like wacky European type character. And Tater is basically that character. We've been at Samwell for most of our engagement with hockey as the sport up to this point. So now we're meeting, we're kind of expanding our type of guy you meet in hockey. And these people, I think, are usually typified as very large and very loud and very gregarious and boisterous. And they like to have fun and they also talk English weird. So if you love wacky jokes about how foreigners are haha funny you're about to make a withdrawal from the exchange bank of laughter that is check please i will say in ngozi's defense here you know i've read a lot of things where people are writing about english language learners as we call them in the english teaching community tater at least basically talks like someone who speaks english as a, a second or third or whatever language as opposed to sometimes when people write English language learners where they just sound like babies, but not even like how babies sound. So, you know, I'll give her, I'll give her some credit here. He definitely sounds like an adult man whose language that he grew up speaking doesn't have articles in it, which is true. He uses a lot of gerunds in weird ways. I will also say he's a defenseman. We later find out he's a large guy. He's 6'4", who uh, I guess wails on people. He's very physically imposing, as, as we'll see. Somebody out there write a, write a fanfic, a Jack Tater fanfic about Jack admiring Tater's play because it's like his dad's, which is also physical. I actually have written a, a very short like Jack Tater fic that I don't think anybody has ever read. Is it somewhere I can read it? It's like on my journal. It's, it's very short. I'll find that later. Anyway, if you read my fic, comment below. <laughs> I think what we're seeing about Tater here that's actually really meaningful for this narrative is that people on this new hockey team about which we don't know very much like Jack and want to be friends with him, which based on knowing Jack up to this point seems fake, but that's what the comic is telling us. Tater is breaking through Jack's boundaries, not dissimilar to the way we sense that Shitty has and Biddy did. Jack is a closed sort of individual and the people who he ends up making friends with are the people who really just like ran their way unlubricated inside. <laughs> Tater will end up doing that, almost forcing his way into friendship with Jack by doing what to me as a human being in the real world would feel very much like overstepping boundaries in a way that's rude. But in a, in a fun comic about making friends, I guess it's how you make friends. The way that he's overstepping the boundary here, making this friendly assumption, if he gets correctly... It probably would feel kind of affirming to Jack to be able to be like known without having to disclose anything about himself as we know Jack hates to do. But because he guesses wrong, it becomes this barrier between them and making friends with Tater even more difficult. To your point about Tater's presumption that Jack has a girlfriend, to be clear, that's what you would call in some context homophobia. Not because Tater is a bigot, although P.S. he's Russian. 
not that he's being constructed as a bigot here who inherently doesn't like gay people, but in the sense that he is starting from a place that he's seeing Jack having a phone call by himself with somebody. So he's number one, presuming that the person that Jack is on the phone with is a romantic partner because he sees Jack smiling on the phone. And so there's already something kind of heterocentric in that assumption that the only sort of person you would have that kind of phone call with is some you were dating and then he of course presumes default that it must be a girlfriend that's what homophobia is is essentially like the system of assumptions that leads you to presume that this sort of person having this sort of phone call could only be talking to an opposite sex romantic partner right and i just think that we'll be seeing this more and more over the first half of this year until I don't even remember what happens after that, but certainly over the first half of this year. And I just want to address a a claim that we've talked about before, but I just want to point out how it's connected to this. A lot of people who disagree with me about this comic like to say that it is just not about homophobia. It's just a fluffy comic that is not concerned with this topic in quite this way and I'm reading too deeply into it or whatever. But I would just point out that the entire emotional and narrative function of this strip is to position Jack within homophobia in a way that we've never seen him positioned before. Again, as Secret pointed out, it's not within like active bigotry in the sense that we see, we later see Biddy get a horrible word yelled at him on the football field or whatever, right? But Oh, spoilers. (laughs) That happens in case you have been for some reason just reading one strip every time you listen to our podcast. I really think that this strip changed my relationship with this comic because homophobia had already existed. But this is the first time that I saw that the consequences of homophobia could be real in a way that reflected my personal experiences of how homophobia has impacted my personal life, which we don't need to get into, but sometimes was unpleasant. And so... I think that's part of why I'm so deeply attached to the way that I felt that this comic could have explored homophobia because it was introduced to this important narrative moment and also because it provides narrative propulsion throughout year three. So to the people who think that it is just a fluffy comic, not about homophobia, I would like to formally say, well, you're incorrect. The problem is, or I think part of why this misconception gets set up is partly because after really like this semester of the comic, the comic is not going to engage very deeply with this topic. It is going to peel away from any possibility that something may go wrong or may go badly. And it's just going to be a series of successive wins without too many like difficult emotions alongside. Or if there are difficult emotions, they're ghettoized almost in pretty pat arcs that conclude very neatly. So it can feel at times like this comic really isn't dealing with difficult emotions at all. I think it's also the case that even while this is the content that is in the comic, especially as Chuck Please's profile grows and the Kickstarters are wildly successful and Ngozi gets a publishing deal and there's a lot of mainstream coverage in places like Vox and the AV Club of Chuck Please. What the paratext and the marketing materials start to reflect is a narrative that it's a positive, happy comic about winning and that it's not like other comics about gays 
that deal with those unhappy things. This is a happy comic. And I think if you are following that very closely and you have a certain loyalty to what the artist is saying, then that in contrast with what's actually in a strip like this is kind of befuddling. And then the actual content of this strip becomes much easier to dismiss. Here's one strip where like Jack seems hurt because somebody thought he was on the phone with his girlfriend. But the way that this is resolved is pretty patent straightforward. So why should you weigh his emotions in this strip more heavily than everything else you're getting from all other sides about how you're supposed to interpret check plays? But I think it's important to keep in mind that when this particular strip was published, the second Kickstarter hadn't launched yet. So this giant wave of media attention that came in with that hadn't flushed into the fandom yet. And a lot of the very mainstream coverage of the comic and its creator that would embrace this narrative about what the meaning of the comic was hadn't begun to circulate yet. So all you had to interpret this strip on the first time you were seeing it was the idea that ultimately the comic was going to be happy, but there were going to be some angsty times first and that the road to the happiness was going to be messy. And there's all of this unresolved tension in the background about who Jack is and what his sexuality is and what led to his overdose and his past with Kent Parson and all of this other stuff that was cloaked in mystery. And it was very much implied that all of that was going to be resolved in the comic. So looking at this in spring 2016, it really felt like this was the beginning of the next narrative arc, which was going along with Biddy on the journey of basically unpacking what's wrong with Jack. And it turns out that what's wrong with Jack is nothing. He's perfect. But when this comic posted and over the arc of this semester of the comic, that wasn't necessarily evident yet. In my anecdotal experience, while the own voices hashtag in YA publishing and representation as a matter of political urgency were certainly around in 2016, the correctness of that position, the ubiquitous correctness of that position, I don't think was as firmly established as it is later when Ngozi gets this big wave of attention and also begins selling the comic, not just to weirdo fans on the internet, but also to like normal people. So I do also think that a lot of the marketing had to do with the growth of that particular perspective, which she wasn't necessarily tied to at this point. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the marketing and a lot of the comments that come from Ngozi about what the meaning of this comic is toward the back end of year three and especially as it gets a, a publishing deal with first second toward the end of year three of the comic basically turn into this is a story about showing that you can be true to yourself and win and it's really important to show that positive message and it's all very generalized biddy is very happy because he's being true to himself is what we're supposed to take away from this story. But I think this raises a lot of questions, at least for me, about what this particular strip is setting up 
What from the beginning of year three do we expect the story of the rest of the year of this comic is supposed to be? And is this is the back half of the comic? We had a sort of neatly contained story that unfolded over the first two years. What's the story of the second half of the comic going to be? Comic didn't end when Jack and Biddy got together and that storyline was concluded. You have to figure that some sort of other kind of tension is going to spring up. So what is the strip telling us we're about to read? I will say that the thing that drives me nuts about the first few comics here is that I think that the initial, let's say, half of this first semester of year three is setting up something about feelings that Jack is grappling with, it seems to be encoding a certain sort of motivation on Jack's part. But then I don't think, at least in my memory, that the comic ends up following through on that. I think it largely abandons it. And I think this is going to become a big problem because toward the end of this year, Jack is essentially going to like insist that they come out but again there's no character work done in terms of getting it jack's internal thought process or his internal feelings his motivation doesn't necessarily seem clear from this one comic to the end of the semester let alone the end of the year let alone the end of check please and i posit of course that Part of this is that the plot of the comic was changed between now and probably the end of year three. But we'll have plenty of time to investigate that. I have exactly the same suspicion, in part because we were talking about it at this point, and so we were developing our our thoughts about this together. But I definitely felt the same, that given how thoughtful Ngozi had been about the setups of other things in the comic. The shift was basically incomprehensible to me, except as a deliberate decision in response, I think, to things that were happening in the fandom at the time. So we'll definitely get into that. That's part of what makes this comic so interesting in terms of its relationship to its fandom and the relationship of like the paratextual material. I have exactly the same thought. The thing that I sense is being set up in this one strip and over the next several strips is not so much... How much of being in the closet can Biddy take? How much of being able to keep Jack's secret is going to wear down on Biddy? It's how much of this is Jack going to be able to take? Because the person you you leave off with having like a significant emotion is Jack. He seems sad and full of regret. I don't know. I, I mean, if you want to do visual analysis and read his expression, you can. But you're seeing a lot more emotion in his expression here than you usually see throughout the rest of the comic. And usually when you see him expressing emotion up to this point, he's like angry. So the idea that he's just sort of staring off into the distance clutching his phone, feeling a little like, I guess it's that emotion that you like to see so much bereft is really affecting. And you have to wonder like, okay, this is obviously going to be about Jack either learning to cope or figuring out some way to negotiate or maybe just breaking under the pressure of keeping this part of himself a secret. And 
I think the comic doesn't follow through on this because what ends up happening is Jack is just like, well, we're going to come out to our friends. I'm going to come out to my team. And he doesn't seem to grapple with that at all. And it's not that I think that it's unrealistic to show somebody not grappling with that. It's just that in this strip, he's grappling with it. (laughs) The idea that you don't see the process of him grappling with it and that that's not really followed up on in the comic is frustrating and doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Something that I would like to raise, and I don't want to talk about it for a long time, is that one thing that really annoys me about this comic, and especially relevant to the beginning of this semester, is that how they ended up in this particular situation would really change my reading of the dynamics between Jack and Biddy here. Is Jack mournful because he told Biddy he had to be closeted and that Biddy had to keep their relationship a secret? Or did Biddy just presume that that was going to happen and Jack didn't have to say anything? There are different dynamics at play here that can really shift a lot based on which of them suggested certain things and which of them is going along with it, even if it's not necessarily what they want. Why would you want to show that conversation as the thing? Like it would be messy and not that interesting and like not fun to write or depict. But this is where the dynamics of the comic not doing that work kind of ruins it for me. First of all, I like stricken, not bereft. Come on. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Well, he he seems both bereft and stricken. I would agree. He does seem stricken here. It's delicious. I also think in terms of narrative symmetry, which is something I've talked about before, one of the frustrating things about the way that this goes is that this is setting up Jack to be in a situation where the same pressures are on him as were on him when he OD'd or very similar pressures, right? The more adult versions of the same pressures. And so if you actually wanted to get into anxiety and like how growing and like learning about whatever fucking mindfulness meditation or whatever Jack does, you know, can help you navigate stressors in your life. Being in love in a new way can help you navigate the stressors in your life. This would actually be a perfect opportunity to to do it. As someone who likes narrative symmetry when it's appropriately deployed, this is extremely frustrating to me that this is just never examined because Jack meeting those same pressures and not ODing is very interesting, but no. Third of all, in read this messy conversation, I would probably enjoy reading that, but I understand like in comparison to the rest of the strip, sure, it's a little messier and stranger and more intimate, but in the boring way than most of the other strips. But this would actually have been a perfect opportunity in the chirp book for a glimpse of that conversation if they had part of it via text, right? And that's part of why the actual like, oh, you're really, that was a nice kiss. Cool. We like each other now. Like that's part of why that conversation was so frustrating is that it didn't include any of that messiness. So anyway, he does look stricken here and I'll just, I'll just keep thinking about that. This is, ow. (laughs) Oh, Jesus Christ. He just pulled off my glasses. Yeah, this God, is- I don't know if you guys, like, Tomato, I know you haven't, like, watched The Simpsons yet, but there's a, a Halloween special segment where somebody is holding a monster and it's clawing at somebody's face and the character is like, oh, it's so cute, he's trying to claw my face off. And it's just like, welcome to my world. Feel free to cut that. Um, <laughs> I think something else that's at play here is that this relationship with Jack, at least at the outset, 
is serving Biddy's purpose in that Biddy doesn't want to come out to his parents. He's kind of happy, you would think, having this relationship. Not only does he not have to talk about it, he can't talk about it even if he wants to. So he doesn't have to deal with all of this stuff. We'll talk about it when we get there, like in, in not that many strips from now. But one of the things that he says about why he doesn't want to tell their friends that they're dating is because that's how people start to find out about things. Once anybody knows, then it's hard to control the flow of information. And as we've seen in this comic, the parents of characters in the comic have inappropriately close relationships with their their children's college friends. So obviously, Shitty is going to be telling Coach everything he knows pretty soon. It would just be interesting and would help me better place what I'm supposed to be getting out of this comic if I had a better understanding. Did Jack basically tell Biddy we can't be publicly identifiable as a couple? Or was it a mutual understanding? Or was it something else? And I guess as we read through this semester of the comic, I'll, I'll kind of point out where I think knowing that would help my reading. Yeah, and you don't actually have to show the conversation to reference it. You know, a quick, I know we talked about this, or I know this is what you wanted, or this is what I wanted, or whatever, is all you need. Although, again, I I would probably like seeing that messy conversation. I'd be interested in how Ngozi conceives of it. But I don't know, we just don't get it. Well, spoiler alert, there's maybe like eight strips from now, there's a conversation where Biddy is like, we can't come out. And Jack is like, no, that's crazy. Listen to yourself. The closeted hockey player is telling Biddy what's crazy when it comes to like who should or shouldn't be in the closet. It doesn't add up is the thing is what I'm trying to say. So um, put a pin in that. That is a pin that, that I intend to take out at least. How does this set up the rest of the story, though? Happy to tell you. Here's what happens. I'm just going to read what I wrote on this outline, actually. (laughs) Jack, so hurt by the constant homophobia and other incidental bullshit he experiences in the NHL, returns to using. Biddy, in an attempt to keep their relationship going and to maintain his wag lifestyle, increasingly ignores Jack's emotional and intellectual absence and turns this into his future career. Jack disappears into a shell of a man who's only good for hockey and sucking dick. And Biddy sells a cookbook. Really, that's the only way that I can deal with what's presented to us in this narrative. (laughs) I mean, I'm saying this like it's a joke, but we'll talk about it. But I had like strong, intense and very difficult relationship with the second half of year three and into year four until I had this revelation where I was like, whoa, what if you just like actually read what's happening in the comic and you don't at all pay attention to what Ngozi tells you you should be interpreting? And then, oh boy, oh, the doors open. The doors open into some wild times. Well, as they say, the author is dead, comma, because we killed her by doing this podcast. Yes, correct. Exactly. Before we totally kill her, though, I will say I do love the art in the strip. Ngozi has talked about seeing the panels in Check, Please as storyboards or screenshots like from a TV show. And so we almost always get a medium shot or a full shot with characters centered like they'd be on a TV screen, which, you know, is usually effective because it's usually like five high, five hockey boys doing hijinks or whatever. But I actually really love that she's beginning to explore a little bit more the kinds of fluidity of form that comics are really known for. Maybe it's because she did a whole degree in sequential art and was forced to take classes on this sort of thing. But 
The fact that we start with the close-up on Biddy's hand, it's beautifully lit. And then we get a couple of panels where get to see a close-up again as Biddy kisses his figurine, a close-up of Jack's head as he has this interruption by Tater. I don't know. There's something really beautiful. I also think the coloring is pretty beautiful in this strip. And because it's so rare to see close-ups in this strip, I actually remember finding it really arresting the first time I read it. I think the blocking is more complex than a lot of strips. And I think it's really beautiful. And uh, I just want to mention this because I didn't know about it. I mean, no one knew about it until like well after the fact. But Ngozi started working with, I thought a colorist and Secret corrected me, a flatter. At some point, once the comic started doing really well, I assume it's after this point, but I don't know for sure. So I'm just suggesting that could have an impact on some of the coloring and some of the art in the upcoming strips. I will say that this is a very rich and dynamic strip. It's one of these classic check please strips where the main action of the actual comic is basically just like Biddy sitting in a room talking. But the thing that he's talking about is like giving a summary of numerous different things that happened. So it's a pretty wide ranging and I don't know, rich tapestry of different different scenes, angles, lighting, etc. In the first panel where you see Biddy's very angular looking clutch, there's a little comic representation of a calendar and you can see that Biddy has annotated the calendar. So say the little cake with the hearts, that's Jack's birthday. You can see that he would have been in Providence at that point because he has on the 6th of August drawn in that he's gone from Providence to Boston to Samwell. So that's when he's come back to the house from Jack's. And then you can see that he has written in like who is arriving at the house on what day for 11. I think that's uh, Ransman Holster when they would be getting in. 55 is uh, Chowder, etc. Conditioning, uh, I guess, is when they start conditioning. Who's to interpret what's happening in this dumb comic? But I'm just going to guess. And is Biddy a giant useless nerd? Like, do you need to write down when the frogs are coming to remember that they're coming on the 10th? I mean, I don't. But yeah, I guess he does. It's kind of befitting his over-the-top homemaking community building spirit. So good character details, and there's a lot that's squeezed in. There are two panels we really haven't talked about, though, which are the panels that are set in Georgia. Do you want to talk about dinner, or do you want to talk about after dinner first? Let's talk about dinner first, and uh, then we'll get to uh, the dessert. They're drinking a jug of sweet tea, y'all. All I can talk about this is I've never had sweet tea, because I'm... A coastal elite. I don't know. Let me tell you two things. Number one, I've never had it either because I'm from the north, so I don't know why you would want pre-sweetened tea, but they call it the table wine of the south. No, really? They do. I mean, southerners call it that. I We wouldn't, obviously. Sweet tea is iced tea that has sugar added to it while it's hot. So 
while you pour the boiling water in, you you put the sugar in it, and then it's just sweet. It's just sweet tea. You don't need to put sweetener in it later. Maybe I've had like a sip of it somewhere, but I've never in my life ordered a sweet tea. And what I will say is, when you order tea or iced tea at a restaurant in the South and definitely in North Georgia, their question in response when you say I'll have an iced tea is sweet or unsweet because every restaurant has both. And most people just keep like a jug of sweet tea in in their fridge. This is a cultural phenomenon that I am just not familiar with. Where I'm from, you can get sweetened iced tea, but sometimes what they'll do, and I don't, I don't usually drink sweetened iced tea. I prefer unsweetened iced tea. Fun fact about me, but sometimes what they'll do is they'll just like shove an unsweetened iced tea in front of you and then hand you some sweet and low and be like, have at it. I mean, it's like regular iced tea or indeed coffee or just a pot of tea where it's like you go to a restaurant and there's sweetener, including sugar on the table and you can use it if you want to or you don't have to. <laughs> like, but uh, no, in, in the South, they ask you if you want sweet or unsweet. I like my iced tea unless it's really, really good tea with maybe like a little bit of Splenda in it after I've gotten it. But I'm presuming that when it's served to me that it will be unsweet when I get it. So yes, this, this always throws me. As for what else they're eating at this dinner... Who's to say? Hard to tell. I really don't get like what the layout of their home is. Like, is their dining room next to the front door? Don't worry about it, I guess. The way that Biddy's father, Coach, has giant vacant Biddy eyes and is staring at the viewer creepily upsets me. It always has. I never noticed that. I mean, I knew, noticed he had big, giant, bitty eyes, but I didn't notice that he was breaking the fourth wall until right now, and I don't like it. Ooh. I will briefly comment on whatever they're eating. It's like definitely like a meat and potatoes kind of meal. There's like a bowl in the middle, and every, it looks like there's like meat and something pea green on Jack's plate. So we get an impression of what they're eating, although no specifics. They also have a big mirror on one wall, and you know what? I like it. Nice, nice taste. Oh, is it a mirror? I thought it was like a cutout. Oh, maybe it is a cutout. I thought it was a mirror. I I don't know. It's hard to say because you don't know what's on the other wall. So how would you know? My parents had a mirror that had two little edges like that. So maybe that's why I'm thinking about this. But anyway, there's something on the wall and it looks fine. It's a very beige house. I was actually literally about to say, what a beige room. Yeah, it's not... It would make me a little sad to live in there, but hey, whatever. Not my problem. I presume that that is the front door, but it's actually in another room and you're sort of seeing it through the doorway. But the angle is such that it is hard to get a sense of really much of anything, including their personalities, other than beige and vacant eyes. (laughs) That's really what we get. But what you can see is that Jack is speaking to them and his fist is clenched on the table. <laughs> you know, he's here's how Jack Zimmerman eats dinner, clenching his fist on the table. Yeah, he has a knife. Mashing his hand. food with a knife in the other hand. <laughs> I, he, presumably he was supposed to have like a fork or something in it, but there's nothing there. So he's just like gritting his fingers together. <laughs> he's just like says thank you sir to Mr. Biddle. You know what good point. I'm going to go look at the year 3 Kickstarter volume and see if this is one of the many things that's been corrected over the years. Typing into my search bar. Check please. 
really is just looking right at the viewer and I, I can't believe I never noticed. It's very upsetting. It's the only thing I notice. No, no, he's not, he's not holding a fork. He's just clutching his fist on the table. Okay, so maybe, maybe he was never supposed to hold a fork. He just eats with a knife. He's trying, he's trying to dig his, his fingernails into his palms to to feel something. That's how he remembers his manners, as he just like clenches, (laughs) clenches little wounds into his palm. And then he's like, oh God, he's wearing, he's wearing like what looks like a collared t-shirt to dinner. I just like, I cannot. I, I assume that's a polo shirt, right? That's what hockey players wear on their off time. I don't know. He's whatever. Anyway, yeah, the the conversation that they're having, he's saying that he's not looking forward to all the um, the media attention. So you'd think that that would be part of this larger puzzle of like, how's Jack going to deal with all of this scrutiny and this big relationship that he's hiding? But also then he says this thing about, I'm lucky I got to see how my dad handled it over the years. I do also think that given the conversation we had earlier about what's being set up here, I I didn't even think about this, but so much of Jack's introduction, especially the hockey prince, is about being watched. And then the only time we see Jack interacting with the media before this is when he huffs out of of the, the, the diner or wherever they are. When he's like, oh, they're mean, and then he has to leave. Too bad that the opportunity for narrative symmetry was again not taken. Yeah, it's it's Jerry's Tomato. It's a place called Jerry's. I was about to say Annie's, and then I was like, no, that's the coffee shop, and then I couldn't remember what it was called. Look, the fact that I know about, like, various businesses in the town of Samwell is uh, just something else could be in my brain, but I'm not sure quite what it is at this point. The only other thing I really have to say about this particular panel, which is just like a visual feast and also a literal feast, is that it's kind of cool how Suzanne and Rick are wearing those sort of striped shirts to show that they're a couple. (laughs) Unlike Jack and Biddy, who are in a check and a plane, meaning they still have tension to work out. Maybe yeah, that's but- part of their closeting is that Pity's like, well, my parents think that couples wear the same thing, so we'll wear something different. No, I mean you can see that like their their body language and and the way in which they're they're both looking at the viewer, looking at Jack from the same side of the table indicates they're sort of unified. It's like Biddy isn't thinking of his parents individually; they're just sort of like his parents, the family. Is this the first time we see Coach? I believe it is. Yes. And Coach had been previously, you know, built up a little bit to be a slightly, not bad, but slightly scary figure because Biddy doesn't want to come out to his parents. And, you know, there's assumptions you might make about having a football coach as a dad or whatever. So having this like nice benign man, like complimenting Jack while he stares, va- <laughs> stares vacantly is, is a kind of nice antidote in some ways or, or a subversion of what you might expect from a stereotypical version of that character. We've got a good mustache happening. Lord knows what that means. He and Shitty are bros in another life. I don't know. All right, listen, here's the greatest panel in the history of Shaq Please, source of many, many speculations and disputes. On the night of the 4th of July, they go in a pickup truck, presumably Biddy's or maybe his dad's, to watch the, I guess, the town's 4th of July fireworks in, you know, a vacant field under some sort of pecan tree. I think the real question is, did they fuck in the bed of this pickup? And I'm going to say no. Here's what I think happened. Some kissing, maybe what 
Biddy previously referred to in Parse 3 as second base because the amount of planning that it would take to have sex, anal sex, in the back of a pickup truck just seems like too much for what's basically a first date. Well, seconded. Although, at least in part because it just seems like if they got caught, it would be a lot more embarrassing and a lot harder to just play it off as like, you know, two guys being guys, like, you know, hanging out, like, you know, being being buds or whatever. Um, no, it's Georgia tomato. That's, it happens all the time. Uh-huh, sure. I think it also depends on how you define fuck, but in terms of anal sex, I don't, I just, ugh, maybe, no, I, no, I don't think so. Possibly a dick went in like a mouth or an ear or something, but a butt, I don't think so. I mean, I guess we'll find out in the uh, 18 plus comic Madison that I have ordered as part of my year four Kickstarter backing, because this trip is the, is the subject of that, of that book, that much promised long delayed little story. So I guess maybe we'll find out exactly what they did get up to. I, I repeat 18 plus. This is the first time they're seeing each other after they kissed and like, I don't know what day necessary. Well, actually, hold on a moment. Let me look up something. Biddy tweets that Jack arrives just in time for the festivities, a.k.a. 4th of July, on the afternoon of July 3rd. And so these fireworks are happening. Some municipalities do celebrate July 4th on July 3rd, the city of Chicago used to. But probably at the latest, these fireworks are happening on like the 4th of July proper. Again, we'll, we'll find out once we get Madison. So basically the timeline is... They kiss, Jack runs out in his trench coat slash judicial robes, and then they next see each other two months later on the afternoon of July 3rd, and then this is like the next day after that. So I'm not saying that based on this like specious evidence that I'm raising, they absolutely wouldn't have done certain things sexually, but they really haven't had that much time to like get physically comfortable around each other. So my guess is that what could they possibly be getting up to? Some fooling around, probably. Although prove me wrong, Kickstarter bonus comic, prove me wrong. Biddy's a virgin, to be clear. He has kissed um, before Jack one person, as we'll find out. And he describes it as that person tried to kiss him, but he wasn't really into it. So he kind of shut it down. So to go from zero to butt fucking in a pickup truck really just to me seems like it would be quite a bit. I also ordered Madison. So we'll see. People do things at different timelines for all sorts of reasons it's possible but man just like in the back of a truck like ugh, i don't know i'd prefer not something that if you've been following the thread of like my comments about butt sex during this podcast that that may become clear is that like i definitely have this feeling that it's like a really intense thing to do <laughs> that is like Effort-laden and time-consuming. And I guess that varies a lot by person, but this is one of these things where it's like, well, you listen to a podcast, you learn about the podcaster. No real comment here other than like, I think for Biddy, given how he is as a person, it probably does feel effort-laden at least the first few times. So 
back of a truck i'm not sure i also find it interesting that like i assume certain things about biddy and jack and who's doing what and their usual configurations sexually but whenever i try to think about the comic and like what ngozi would want or be likely to draw it's always the opposite of what i think would be interesting and worthwhile so whenever i think about this i'm always thinking about like ugh, it wouldn't even be like the kind of power dynamic that i'm interested in between them it's this other thing that i'm like oh fine yeah i mean you can see if you like zoom in on the little figures of jack and biddy that's what's happening is that they're embracing or like cuddling while they watch these fireworks and oh let's just presume that they are tuned to the radio that's playing the 1812 overture on whatever like the local municipal station is because that's my experience of 4th of July fireworks. And Biddy is leaning on Jack. So like Jack is sort of the the larger man and Biddy is kind of like leaning into him, being held by him. Whereas my personal narrative is that Biddy's like, okay, take your clothes off and just sort of like spread out in the back of this bed here. <laughs> Close your eyes and I'll get to work <laughs> or like whatever. Right, exactly. That's my like funny version of acting it out in my own head. <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> he says I'll get to work and then he just doesn't do anything for almost the whole time. And Jack's just waiting there with his eyes closed missing, missing all the That's time. part of it, Tomato. That's part of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's got to line up with the cannons, all right? Anyway. Feel free to put the 1812 overture in the end of this episode while you're editing. <clears throat> anyway, you got anything else uh, to cover here, re-fucking in the pickup truck? No, just that I, I, a lot of people, like I've seen posts on Tumblr that are basically like, real talk, Biddy and Jack definitely fucked in that pickup truck. And it's just like, no, they didn't. Jack was like opening up a package of fleets like in Biddy's parents' house before they drove out there. Like, get real. <laughs> like, they didn't fucking a pickup truck. Second base it is. That's when ears get involved, right? Anyway, all right. So about this Lego figure, let's just, we got to talk about it for a second. We'll see more about how Biddy got the Lego figure oh, pretty soon. But until then, what is happening with this little figure of Jack? Well... It's a little figure of Jack. And as Ngozi tells us in the blog post, it is not a Lego, even though, yes, we do call it a Lego figure because it looks like one. It is based on a line of figurines of hockey players that look like little Lego figurines made by a company called Oyo, O-Y-O. And yes, they do make them of real hockey stars. So uh, I don't think every single player gets one, only the ones that they think they'll sell. And maybe every player gets one. I don't know. This is not the kind of thing that I would ever buy. You know what else I hate, Tomato? I hate fucking Funko Pops. Like, talk to me about it in another case. But Same. Um, same. Anyway. This is our, our anti-Funko Pop podcast continues apace. It's basically like they make little Lego toys of hockey players and you can buy them. And we'll see the scene where Jack gives this to Biddy in a few comics. So not to go into it too much, but uh, they are apart. They're not that far apart. They're like a 40 minute drive apart, but still... Biddy's at college and Jack has moved into his own condo in Providence so he can start his career and they're apart and Biddy has a little thing that he can use to transfer his emotions for Jack onto because it represents Jack. 
And he kisses it while he's saying that he's not going to tell the whole world that they're dating. But of course, this year of the comic ends with Biddy kissing Jack in public. So he no longer needs to transfer his affections to the figurine and telling the whole world that they're dating by kissing him in public. And this has been a much commented upon bookend for this year of the comic. This is crazy though, right? Like this is bananas. Well, I think it's crazy. Treating objects, even highly meaningful objects heirlooms, things given to me by people I really care about as if they are vessels of meaning beyond which that they can actually literally contain is not my MO. But some people need what I think has become thought of in fandom as comfort objects. And Biddy seems to have one. (laughs) Two, in fact, because yes, his rabbit is in the room while he's God. (laughs) Making this gesture. Comfort objects are certainly a thing I see people on Tumblr talk about. And then I'm like, that's what toddlers have. I don't understand this, but okay, fine. Sure. But you know, whatever. I'm like a cold, hard bitch or whatever. So fine. But I, (laughs) thank you for your face of agreement. I appreciate it. I do think that there's something kind of interesting here. Like we are supposed to see this as a sweet gesture. I think, you know, he loves Jack or whatever. I guess love is maybe a strong word at this point, but maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, he kisses his little figure and it's so cute or whatever. I hadn't thought this out before. So forgive me if I'm a little jumbled, but this idea that you said of like imbuing an object with more meaning than it can actually contain makes me think about how Jack sort of just like disappears in the latter half of the year and how this little object, this controllable thing, which is exactly what Biddy wants it to be because it's an object and Jack in his relationship, not only to Biddy, but to the NHL and just bending against the way that his character is set up to fulfill the queer needs of the story. Like there's something kind of interesting there for me about this moment, how Jack himself becomes kind of an object of Ngozi's. I mean, obviously he's always an object of Ngozi's writing desires. He's a character and she's real. So that happens. But because as we discussed earlier in this episode, it seems like her trajectory changed the character changed along with that trajectory of course and in doing so sort of just like stopped being around as much and I don't know there's something kind of interesting about like the objectified Jack here versus the like emotional Jack here that we see in the final panel don't know where that's going but it's something for me to think about maybe You'll notice that after Biddy kisses the little figurine as he's putting it back on its stand, it's it's doing a little selly. Well, because he just scored, right? So he's got to do a selly. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's just a cute little gesture. Biddy is holding the phone with one hand and it would have been awkward for him to like move the little figurine's hands into that position. Maybe it's embodying Jack a little more than whatever. Every time Biddy kisses Jack's figure, a little more of Jack's soul gets into the into the haunted Lego doll. And that's it's- why... It's a cute little detail. Is it a sickeningly cute little detail such as I don't relate to in my own personal life? Well, obviously, yes. But it's a nice little background moment. You'll also notice in Biddy's room that he seems to have um, a flannel that I'm pretty sure belongs to Jack hanging from his shitty 3M Corporation hanger 
adhered to his closet door. This is exactly what I mean when I say starting to read the comic exactly as it is on the page and what I would guess about someone doing those things versus what I think Ngozi wants me to read about someone doing those things. This tells me a lot about Biddy. It tells me a lot about his maturity in my perspective. I know that some people do have like comfort objects who are like perfectly adult, but Biddy's pretty young here and thinking about who would sort of be idealizing a relationship in this way so early and it's really interesting when you start to see like how their relationship plays out. But then you'll notice that because she's just reusing the same background for Biddy's room in the house, that when the angle changes and he's like vlogging, not only is the is the flannel not visible, but those little hangers aren't visible anymore either. It must have fallen down. <laughs> yeah, well, continuity error. Anything else you want to say about uh, this wonderful strip of miracles? No, I think I've said quite enough, really. Oh boy, tomato, tomato, this year of this comic. Here we go. I cannot stress enough that I would literally out loud screech and message you (laughs) about, about some of these. So I'm pretty psyched to get to them. Oh, I'm excited to tell people anecdotes about like where I was when X strip posted, which I think in the next batch of updates, I start to I start to like remember like, oh, I know I was sitting X, Y and Z when like the strip posted. And what I did was I immediately like started running back and forth around my apartment or whatever, you know, I went nuts. <laughs> Unlike the sort of first half of this comic, which I read in one long chunk after I saw pictures of Jack and Biddy kissing, by the time that these things were posting, I was actively following the comic and the Blackhawks were doing extremely badly in the NHL playoffs in 2016. It was a very, very vibrant and exciting time to be following a hockey fandom or a hockey adjacent fandom. And I have a lot more anecdotes about how I felt about things like when when they were introduced starting now. I will probably not have as many stories this time around because at this point my life was devolving into a semi-corporate cult. And so, uh, so a lot of it just sort of blurs together. But the wonderful sparks of being like oh boy a check please update um at least interrupted it in the summer of 2013 i guess august 2013 i was at otakon in baltimore with nahingen and this was one of these cons that was just packed to the gills full of uh homestuck cosplayers like trolls walking around. And I remember being with Nahangan after we'd gotten like Rito's water ice or something like that, seeing a group of these like Homestuck cosplayers at Otakon being like, oh my God, the comic updated. And just like, they were all freaking out because there was like a Homestuck update. And I remember being like, ugh, well, what could you expect? But then during like the first half of this comic, I, I had like many similar experiences where I was like outliving my adult life. And then all of a sudden I saw the check please updated because like I was checking Tumblr or whatever and I just lost him. It's like, ah, and like had to start like running around like uh, an adult restaurant uh, with real people to be like, you guys. And then the people I was with would be like, excuse me. So uh, yeah, really just like my brain went out to lunch. My brain went down to lunch with this semester of it. And 
I think you bore the brunt of a lot of a lot of internet shrieking. I was shrieking with you. It was a delight. Every every single new thing was like, oh my god, did you see this? And uh, unfortunately, I did also feel that way about Homestuck. So I've lived a very bad life, and that's all I have to say about that. Well, the other sort of comparative moment that I I will introduce into this narrative is that there is another Simpsons episode where they're introducing a character on the in-universe show Itchy and Scratchy, a dog called Poochie. And the beginning of the short that the animators put in to critique comics is Itchy and Scratchy driving to the fireworks factory. And they're driving by signs that say like fireworks factory, 100 miles, fireworks factory, 35 miles. But then before they get to the fireworks factory, they meet for the first time Poochie the Rockin' Dog and they pull over and they pick up Poochie the Rockin' Dog and he starts doing a rap about like who he is and cutting away from the the itchy and scratchy short to just like the people in the Simpsons home watching the cartoon one of the characters goes when are they gonna get to the fireworks factory and I will say that also encapsulates my feelings about check please from here on out The Simpsons. I gotta watch it so that I too can finally understand how to express my checklist feelings. When are they gonna get to the fireworks factory? Never. (laughs) They're not going to the fireworks factory. (laughs) Should make a meme. Like, here's the thing. If I had, like, any kind of editing software that wasn't, like, MS Paint, I would basically take the stills of this and, like, over Millhouse saying, when are they gonna get to the fireworks factory? Write, like check please fandom and then the fireworks factory is ken parson i don't know what to tell you i think even done an ms paint i would chuckle and click like on tumblr so you know speaking of when are they gonna get to the fireworks factory the next comic oh boy is it less exciting than this one 3.2 tatty tour where Uh we will meet some characters and they certainly will be in the comic i have more to say about that comic when we get to it Not that much, but a little bit. We'll see you next time. Who are you? Well, isn't that what we're all asking ourselves, like, internally? Um, My name is Secret. You can find me to finally catch up to the start of my Tumblr and see my real-time reactions to Check Please, which are archived there, on C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, or my other more general purpose and or South Park uh, Tumblr is S-K-R-T-O-M-G, and I'm on AO3 at Familiar. And I'm Tomato, and you can find me at tomatowrites.tumblr.com or tomato underscore greens on AO3. And you can find our podcast at checkdisplease.tumblr.com or on Podbean or on Spotify. Yep, that's true. We'll see you back here next time for 3.2 Last Tango in Whiskey Facts. (laughs) Bye. Bye.
written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato. Except for just now when they were by Tchaikovsky. And our art is by Nahangan. That was very legit.